Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. Long COVID, US-China relations, a shift to greener energy policies, digital acceleration, and the risk of missing the post-COVID rebound. These are the top five risks for global business that Control Risks has identified this year. Think of them, if you will, as a set of lenses with which to view where we're headed. Today's episode is one of a five-part series in which we'll be exploring the regional impact of these global top five risks. And in this episode, we're turning our attention to the Middle East and North Africa. Uncertainty and unrest were already growing in this part of the world before the pandemic. And even as the world begins to recover and a new Biden administration attempts to reassert US global leadership, the pivot away from oil as well as regional frictions will continue to fuel instability in the region. With me to discuss the impact and the nuance of control risks top five for 2021 in the Middle East and North Africa are two of my colleagues. Graham Griffiths is an associate director based in our Dubai office, and Graham leads our political risk team for the Middle East and North Africa. Graham, I think this is your first appearance on the Global Insight podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. William Brown is a director also in our Dubai office, and his expertise sits at the convergence of cyber and crisis management. Welcome to the Global Insight podcast. Nice to be here. Guys, let's just jump into really the first premise of the top five, and that is this issue of long COVID and what it's going to mean to have a multi-speed and highly fragmented exit from the pandemic. What does it look like from Dubai? And, and, and how do you anticipate the year is going to unfold in the Middle East and North Africa? Now, I think we're seeing that in the Middle East and North Africa, really it's going to encapsulate this dynamic that you just outlined where countries emerge from the pandemic at varied speeds over various timeframes. This region was one of vast inequalities to begin with, and we're seeing those inequalities being replicated in the response to and the potential for emergence from the pandemic. You know, two countries in the region are actually leading the way globally in terms of the speed at which they're rolling out their vaccines on a per capita basis. That's, of course, the UAE where, where Will and I sit and Israel. You know, and that's really being driven by these countries' financial resources, administrative capacity, and just drive to, to try to get past the pandemic as quickly as possible. That drive is being accelerated, particularly in the case of the UAE, because the economy here, and particularly in Dubai, is so dependent on tourism, trade, and really global integration. And so Dubai really wants to, again, lead the way and position itself as one of the first countries to be open for business once again. Dubai has, and the UAE more generally, is proceeding very rapidly with the vaccine rollout you know, there are some drawbacks. We're seeing that that attempt to kind of really be open for business has led to a big surge in coronavirus cases. We're now at a record high and the government is having to reassess some of these reopening policies. But I think, again, just because of the political structure of the UAE, the resources at the government's disposal, it's really well placed to have an accelerated exit from COVID. And I think that that's more generally the case in different parts of the GCC. 
The Gulf states are countries that have massive financial resources and so can you know, acquire the vaccine and I think also have the ability to more or less mandate a majority of their populations will take the vaccine. That's unfortunately not the case across much of the rest of the region, where there are a number of countries that remain mired in conflict, Yemen, Syria, Libya, and other countries that are just you know, suffering from decades of mismanagement and economic decline that's now been exacerbated by the pandemic. Countries like Egypt, Jordan, Tunisia are really struggling, and we don't expect that they'll be able to have the financial or administrative resources to mount a successful vaccination campaign. I think one of the big questions will be, then what impact does it have on regional dynamics? And I think, again, one big question for the Gulf states is that since 2011, the Gulf states have really opened their pocketbooks to bankroll the stability of some of their key partners in the region, like Egypt, and attempt to prop up other countries like that are going through difficult times, whether it's Tunisia, Jordan, et cetera. That hasn't always been an entirely positive development. The Gulf states have at times worked at cross purposes. Some of that aid is not always delivered effectively or it's delivered to kind of authoritarian regimes that while they may provide stability, don't always provide the type of economic development opportunities and political reform that the international community might wish. But the Gulf states are also now facing a situation where they are more fiscally constrained. They've been suffering from years of low oil prices and also demands from their local populations that resources be directed inwards. And so a big question for the Gulf states in the coming, I think, year is to what extent will they continue to be the source of funds to provide for regional stability, reconstruction and conflict zones, and you know, hopefully emerging from this crisis? As COVID goes on and, and, and as it is going to go on, and obviously with the development of, of new variants happening all the time, we're, we're not going to see a rapid sort of close of the issue and sort of return to normal. Exactly as Graham said, the, the kind of the economic impact of COVID is going to have quite a stark impact on everything, which is kind of stating the obvious. But one of the things we're seeing under the, those circumstances is that, that if you are adversarial to a country or you have a, a kind of a protagonist view of things, the, the old school and highly expensive ways of launching an attack are going to be eroded. So we are seeing and expecting to see, and I know it's something we're going to touch on a bit later, a huge surge in the kind of cyber activity as a primary attack method, because without putting too fine a point on it, it's easy to deploy on a global basis and cheap. And that's what we're going to see. And we're starting to see that trend happening already. Without deliberately kind of taking it down my own particular kind of subject here, I think that's one of the things we'll see in long COVID. And we will continue to see as, as the, the inequality of recovery comes through. By and large, over the arc of the pandemic, we haven't necessarily seen severe pressure on the security situation really anywhere in the world, other than perhaps in the cyber arena. But now in the world of physical security, the Middle East and the broader area looks to be, or perhaps I should phrase this as a question, is it at a tipping point, and, 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 you know, Graham, will it tip over? And will, what does a company do if it does? You know, I think we've just passed a couple of major anniversaries, the 10th anniversary of the uprising in Tunisia and Egypt, and we're coming up on the anniversaries for the uprisings that occurred in other countries in the region as well. And one of our kind of standard refrains for the past couple of years is that, you know, the Arab uprisings are not over. A number of countries remain mired in conflicts that began back in 2010, 2011. 
other places, there's been a kind of return to some type of stability, but a fragile stability. But those underlying factors that cause those uprisings to begin with, lack of economic opportunity, lack of, of a feeling of a, having a voice in government, sclerotic regimes that were totally unresponsive to the aspirations and needs of their people, those factors were still present. And indeed, in 2019, we saw almost a kind of Arab uprisings 2.0, as there were major protest movements in Iraq, Algeria, Sudan, Lebanon, and Iran, some of which, again, succeeded in, in toppling governments. COVID kind of forced an interruption of those movements. You saw governments almost opportunistically taking advantage of the pandemic to impose you know, lockdowns and restrictions on public gatherings that really sapped some of the momentum of some of these protest movements. Algeria is a case in point. But at the same time, the pandemic, as we've just been discussing, has worsened the economic situation in the region and so also provided new impetus for the reemergence of unrest uh, as we emerge from the lockdown period. And again, we are seeing that already start to happen. There have been protests in, in Lebanon in the past couple of days, protesting against the stringency of the lockdown measures the government has imposed that kind of are totally out of step with the fact that you know people are struggling and need to eat and can't just remain confined to their homes. So with these types of events, it's always difficult to answer as you as you asked Chuck, you know, are we at a tipping point? I think one thing we learned in 2010, 2011 is that, you know, it can be very inherently unpredictable triggers that spark these broad waves of unrest and there can be unpredictable contagion effects that help it spread across the region. But what I would say is that the region is primed for unrest because of those structural factors that I mentioned. And so I won't be surprised if that trigger occurs and it could occur again in the countries that have already seen unrest or in countries that have you know, managed to escape it more or less, Morocco, Jordan, Egypt for the last couple of years, we could see you know, a return to significant unrest in the coming year. And I think just to, to build on what Graham's saying in terms of what can a, an organization do about that, it's the old adage that actually putting a, a pragmatic short form plan in place, which allows you to have certain things established so you know what your priorities are, you've got some form of horizon scanning so it doesn't come as much of a surprise as it does to your neighbors and competitors. And you, you've taken those kind of trigger and escalation points and you formalize them so that you, you really do have a framework to respond in gives an organization the opportunity to actually focus on what it needs to be focusing on as opposed to making it up as it goes along. And it sounds stupid, but that is absolutely the key. A kind of generic framework that can help your organization respond to any incident, whether it is a geopolitical incident in the region or your building burning down, and then have those structures in place where you've got the right people in the right place, physical or virtual, certainly in, in modern times, with the right information flows to make the best decision. This is what I say that kind of instant response and crisis management is all about. It's about making a decision. And I've, if I've said it once, I've said it a couple of hundred times, there is absolutely nothing more damaging to an organization than no decision. You can make the wrong decision. And you can then actively manage out of it by leadership, but not doing anything at all is what kills companies, basically. And so making sure you've got those structures in place with the right people to use the, the information that's available to make the best decision is absolutely key. It's interesting, Will. I mean, some of this does seem obvious, but it's really not that easy to do. Throughout the crisis, we have sat on our clients, crisis management teams. We've been in on the weekly calls or the, or the twice-weekly calls. And you know, one of the things that we'll talk about a little bit later towards the very end of this podcast is 
is how some companies actually still seem to be in crisis management mode and haven't really yet emerged from the crisis and positioned themselves to look for opportunity. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's move on to risk number two, where we talk about the relationship between the United States and China. And again, broadly speaking, our colleagues in Beijing and, and Shanghai and Hong Kong are telling us that they think that you know, the next period in the relationship between the two countries is going to be one of stabilization without normalization. And I think our, our colleagues in, in Washington agree with that. The question for the Middle East is, are you innocent bystanders? Are you collateral damage? Are you participants? Are you influencers? Where does this hugely economically critical region sit between the two superpowers? This is one risk where maybe the, the Middle East has it a, a bit easier than others. Certainly, the region isn't totally isolated from this global geopolitical dynamic. You know, a lot of states in the region have longstanding and deep ties to the U.S., which is their major kind of external security partner, and also have extensive ties to China. Most of the oil that's exported from the Gulf now goes to China and other parts of Asia. And so that has been a relationship that they've been increasingly intent on, on cultivating and, and deepening to kind of lock in that important customer. But at the same time, I don't think that countries in the region have been you know, faced with this kind of difficult decision of China or the US and haven't really suffered too much collateral damage from the tensions between the, these two global powers. I think there will be times in the coming years when you know, there will be some push and pull. There's also, you know, a question about what will China's footprint in the region look like, given that, again, it's such an important energy supplier to China. But I think at least for now, I don't see this as being such a huge issue, but maybe one where it is, and this is, I think, maybe Wilkin offers some particular insight is one place where countries are having to make decisions is on the kind of technology cyber front, because, you know, we are seeing the rollout of 5G here. And, you know, that's obviously a key issue. Absolutely. It's where technology and geopolitics are becoming one. There is a little bit of you choose your technology provider in the same way as anything else. And that's got to be aligned to what you want to do in terms of particularly China and, and the US. I mean, we've seen with some of the challenges around the rollout of Huawei technology in lots and lots of countries. And you know, we, we haven't seen explicit legislation or, or kind of controls in the region that limit organizations or otherwise to one or the other, but it is absolutely something that is coming through. And I think one of the other things that we see with the US and, and China is obviously two of the, the world's leading providers of technology solutions, that kind of the under the kind of the radar background stuff that's going on in, in cyberspace is very much going to be influenced by the normalization or stabilization or otherwise of, of the relationship between the two. And I think what we've seen under the previous administration is that that has had extreme swings depending on exactly what the previous president was doing at any particular time. It's particularly interesting to be talking to colleagues in our Dubai office on the next topic, which is all about the green rebound and the risks in misreading or failing to sort of seize this moment of enthusiasm, to put it very mildly for sustainable investments and sustainable industries. But you guys are sitting in and around one of the world's great hydrocarbon exporting regions. 
is the Middle East embracing the green revolution, you know, something that's been accelerated by the pandemic? Or what is the threat to the region posed by the green revolution? Is there any balance between those two competing trends? It's been the case for decades that particularly oil producing countries in the region have had on you know, their national development plans or strategic agenda that they need to diversify away from oil. And in practice, they've achieved very little on that front. You know, the drop in oil prices a couple of years ago, I think re-energized those aims. And it's being once again pushed forward by the kind of fiscal difficulties that these countries are, are confronting at the moment. You know, they have invested in, in renewables. You've seen the big investments in solar, more global investments in electric car companies, battery producers. So there is some focus on and enthusiasm for the green revolution, but I don't think it's gone probably nearly far enough. When you look at the implications of climate change for this region, they're pretty dire. As Will and I can attest, the summers in the Gulf are already toasty, to say the least. You're looking at the potential for temperatures that make human existence difficult. And beyond the Gulf, even, you know, you're seeing that this is one of the regions that's most, I think, at risk of the impact of just stresses on ecosystems because of climate change, water scarcity. And we've already seen in Iraq, for example, that the lack of clean water, inability to produce electricity has led to kind of major social unrest. And you're looking at that, you know, potentially being replicated across much of the region. Climate change is such a threat to this region that it almost has to be an opportunity because if it's, you know, more isn't done to accelerate the adoption of green technologies, put in place measures to mitigate and deal with the impact of climate change, you know, the region is in for a lot more turmoil and instability. What is really interesting, I think, is probably to add to this is I've recently been working with one of the regional sovereign wealth funds who are actually starting to, to consider very carefully the kind of the ESG element of their investments. And they are starting to look at the green credentials of potential investments, if for no other reason other than they think other investors are doing the same. But that is something that you know, would not have been a conversation two years ago at all. Well, we're going to stay with you now to move on to our number four global risk. And that's really all about the cyber world and digital acceleration. What we're saying globally is a number of things on this, but some of the risks in 2021 were seeds that were planted in 2020. And that is that companies that had to basically implement their five-year tech strategy in five weeks open themselves up to a lot of vulnerabilities. My vision of, of, of the cyber world in the Middle East is that it's this crossroad of cyber threat actors. Is that accurate? And if it is, what does that mean for 2021? It's kind of two things on that. So obviously the supercharging of what has become kind of no, digital transformation for organizations is presenting a vast opportunity for cyber criminals. And we can use the UAE as a case in point. We saw a 250% increase in attacks on the UAE over 2020. And that's both coordinated attacks and your kind of the ransomware type financial crime elements. And so, so that is clearly having a, a massive, massive impact. And, and you add to that the opportunities presented by remote working and the people suddenly being at home and some of the controls that exist or existed in the normal corporate environment that were relaxed or removed to manage continuity, just keep things moving 
I'll give two really simple examples. One is that things like password refreshing were paused because it is more difficult when everybody's remote than it is when they're plugged into the home network. So things like identity and access management element of regularly changing passwords and making sure those passwords are suitably robust for a lot of organizations just stopped because they didn't have the mechanism in place to manage that. And the other element is around, you know, you're sitting at your desk in the office and your supervisor is 10 feet away or 15 feet away or a floor away. It doesn't really matter. You've got supervisors and peers around looking at what you're doing on your machine. They will just walk past you and see what's happening. And if that isn't the case, there's a huge opportunity for misuse of the environments we've seen. And we've seen an astronomical increase of viruses, old school, ransomware, people doing things that they should not be doing on their work machine in the workplace because the workplace is now home that creates an opportunity for criminals. Now, from the kind of the crossroads in cyber, the thing with cyber activity and and particularly in the areas we're talking about is the cyber activity maps very, very cleanly and I would say perfectly, except nothing's ever perfect clearly, to big geopolitical events where we see big Accords coming into to play between obviously the UAE and Israel or the Qatar blockade or, or any of those things, the people who are pro that or anti that tend to manifest themselves in cyberspace. So you will see attacks spike or reduce depending on what's happening with those elements as well. And, and we have absolutely seen that. And just to go back to the stat I threw out earlier on, yes, there has been a 250% increase in attacks on the UAE in the last year, more or less, but we saw an additional spike on the already spiked environment in late August last year, where the peace accord, the Abrams Accord was, was announced. We saw a, a huge ramp up of activity, which is clearly linked to some of the elements I've just mentioned. Thank you for setting up a perfect transition over to Graham. I mean, if there's a, a sort of a relationship between geopolitical events and cyber activity, what should we be expecting over the next six to 12 months, Graham? Maybe some cautious optimism in the sense that with the new U.S. administration demonstrating a clear desire to return to the nuclear deal and reach some type of understanding with Iran, you know, that could, if it goes you know, well, at the very least, tamp down one of these major fault lines. And we've already also seen another dispute that Will mentioned, the boycott of Qatar, uh, ended at the beginning of this year, which should also helpfully you know, contribute to a slightly more benign cyber environment. But, you know, like I said, I'm only cautiously optimistic because we think it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. and Iran to come to terms to what a revived and potentially expanded nuclear deal might look like. Those efforts may not succeed. They're very likely to drag on through the end of this year into next at the very least. And moreover, the Iranians have really focused on developing a suite of kind of asymmetric tools that they can use in a deniable fashion in order to put pressure on their regional and geopolitical adversaries. And cyber is one of the key aspects of that toolkit, in addition to the kind of cultivation of militias and other armed groups in the region, the ability to engage in physical sabotage, like we saw with the attacks on tankers off the coast of the UAE in 2019. And so I also expect that the Iranians, you know, if they're facing difficulties with the US or feeling under pressure, that the cyber toolkit is one that they'll certainly, you know, consider resorting to. And also one that their adversaries, you know, have also shown proclivity to use to kind of put some type of brakes on 
the development of the Iranian's nuclear program. So we've seen the U.S. and Israel you know, engage in very aggressive behavior to try to sabotage the Iranian nuclear program using cyber tools. Like I said, cautiously optimistic that we could see some positive developments in this area this year, but it's still going to remain, I think, something where there's a you know potential for something big and adverse to happen. I was just going to add to that, actually. I think one of the things we will see, if you looked at the, the spread of coordinated attacks on the GCC in the run-up to the end of, of 2020, the UAE was the country that was targeted most with 33% of all attacks. You then had Saudi Arabia. You then had everything else was distributed pretty evenly. Sorry, Saudi Arabia was, was 29% of all attacks. Everything else was distributed pretty evenly around the region other than Qatar that had a tiny percentage of the coordinated attacks. And you, you've got to assume under those circumstances, and this is clearly sort of Graham's area of expertise, is that the protagonists of those coordinated attacks probably weren't that unhappy with the fact that Qatar was blockaded, that relationship between Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the UAE and, and all of those other elements were not strong. Now that those blockades have been reduced and the relationship is warming, I think if I was a Qatari information security manager, I would be very, very aware that we are suddenly becoming a much more prominent target from one of the world's leading countries that, that launches these sorts of attacks. I think it would be something I'd be reasonably concerned about. Qatar has obviously managed to maintain an acrobatic, let's say, position in the region. You know, they have very strong ties to the US, but because of this shared gas field with Iran, you know, it's very important for them to maintain strong ties to the Iranians. And they've also, you know, under the under the boycott, we're looking for partners and other people who could help them withstand the, the impact of that. So I certainly think, as Will said, that now with the thawing to some extent of this kind of cold conflict in the Gulf, the countries are maybe in a slightly more vulnerable position. But I think they're also intent on, you know, maintaining to the extent possible that kind of neutral position and are not going to be drawn into the kind of UAE, Saudi, Bahrain camp that is very hostile towards Iran. You know, we've been spending a lot of time talking about things that are meant to happen in the future. And our number five risk reminds us that there's one other thing that's supposed to happen in the future, and that is an economic recovery. Is the recovery going to come to the Middle East when broadly forecast, for example, by companies like our partner company, Oxford Economics, which sees global GDP really rebounding in the second half of 2021. So that's the first question. Is it going to arrive on time in the Middle East? And, and secondly, from your perspective and your conversation with, with our clients and your conversation with companies and your own observations, are companies in the Middle East and companies investing into the Middle East, are they ready for it whenever it does get there? I would say that unfortunately, this region is going to be a laggard when it comes to economic rebound. Growth rates in the Middle East and North Africa were low and lagging before the pandemic. And I don't really expect that that to change as we emerge from it. You know, this region does not attract a lot of foreign direct investment, heavily reliant on a single commodity set by instability, frictions, geopolitical fault lines. And so I'm not particularly optimistic that the global economic rebound and the rising tide of global economic growth is going to lift the boats in the Middle East. As we kind of mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, you know, I think there are a couple of countries that are maybe you know, really trying to position themselves as being out in front in terms of getting to the end of COVID. And so we'll be better placed to catch some of the, the economic rebound. But more generally, I'm unfortunately not particularly optimistic. Is the status as sort of lagging behind global trends, is that 
in part a structural thing where, you know, your part of the world needs to wait to see energy prices rise and, and, and will then sort of follow that trend? Or is this also just because of problems with vaccine rollout and sort of more situational problems? So I think it's probably a combination of both. Certainly in the Gulf, oil price is a maybe the main barometer and main contributor to the overall speed of economic growth. But since, you know, I mean, it, it's looking healthier, but, you know, we're not going to see a return to the dizzying heights of $100 a barrel oil. Even a slight recovery in prices is not going to lead to some type of major economic boom, I think, in the Gulf anytime soon. And then more broadly, the issues are, are I think, are structural and related also to the kind of problems that the region is suffering from. You just have sclerotic governments, aging infrastructure, conflict, and not an economic environment that's going to attract global investment that will kind of you know help to contribute to any type of, of takeoff in economic growth. You know, Will, at the very beginning of this discussion, we talked about companies and, and their crisis management capabilities. And have you sensed in your work around the region are companies still in crisis management mode? Are they out of crisis management mode? Do they know how to make the pivot? It really varies from sector to sector, honestly. So if you are in the hospitality sector or travel and tourism, generally, the crisis management mode of COVID lasted significantly longer than it did if you're in professional services or financial services or, or, or anything else. Because after that initial, what are we going to do about this? Okay, well, we're now going to we're now going to work from home. We're going to do this digital transformation, blah, 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 blah. And over the first few weeks, when that started to normalize, a lot of organizations came out of crisis management mode then on the assumption that come the end of summer 2020, we'd all be back and we'd all be back in hotels, on the beach, and in planes, and everything else. And so we saw some organizations come out of crisis management mode and start to adapt to, to working remotely. I think also what happened was organizations in some cases emerged from crisis management too soon because their working assumption is we'd all be back at normal and fine by you know, autumn, worst case, Christmas, very worst case. I don't think anybody thought that it was going to go through into to 2021 and Q2 2021 when it was first coming out. So some companies have gone back into crisis mode purely to maintain operations. It's the operational resilience of an organization is being tested to the absolute max by some of the conditions they're working under. Organizations are transitioning out of crisis management into a new style of working, and in some cases, going back into crisis management as things go on. This is probably a good time to wind things up. And what I should do before we sign off is say a very big thank you to Will Brown and to Graham Griffiths for joining us. Graham, it's always a great pleasure to talk to you. Welcome to the podcast, and I promise you this won't be your last time. Thank you very, very much. Great. Looking forward to future episodes. Will, thank you very, very much for um, hanging with us today. Brilliant. Thank you, guys. Really good to speak to you. That's all for this special edition of The Global Insight. Tune in tomorrow for a look at the top five in the Americas. You can also visit controlrisks.com for our full Risk Map 2021 forecast which includes our top five risks, key topics picked by our analysts, a calendar of geopolitical events throughout the year, and the actual map of political and security risks for 2021, which is where the name Risk Map comes from to begin with. Thank you, and bye for now.